trust you have your Bibles, and let's open them up to Matthew 27, as we hear the word of the living God. We'll be in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27, we'll go all the way to verse 44 this morning. May God bless the reading of his word. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, it's always good to open up God's word together. It's always good to be centered on the cross, but it's good this morning as uh, it is the fourth Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper together, and uh, it's uh, rare that we are in this place in the gospel uh, and at the same time taking the Lord's Supper, and so I hope today that as we literally set our minds upon the cross, that we'd be preparing our hearts uh, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Obviously, we continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and now we have arrived finally at the climax, at least in the, the beginning climax of narrative. Without the, the kingdom does not come without the cross, and without the cross does not come the resurrection, and we are here at the place of the cross. We are the place where Jesus has now been condemned by both the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and um, reluctantly, if so, but he has been condemned to death by Pontius Pilate. And for both, he is condemned for being the king of the Jews. 
In the eyes of the Jews, this was a blasphemous claim. Be claiming to be the king, and in particular, the Messiah, the Son of God. He was a blasphemer, and before the Romans, this was a sign of treason. They didn't care if it was blasphemy. There was a sense in which there's only one king but Caesar, and so this was enough to condemn him all around. But the irony that bleeds through this text, and has, has been there all along, but is, is certainly played up here, is the, is the reality that he truly is the king. The charges, in some sense, are true. They, they have misunderstood them, but they are true. And everything in this text, strangely, is true, though it comes out of mocking voices. They see him as a blasphemer and a traitor, worthy of the most cruel punishment. But they do not understand what they are doing, that they are crucifying the Lord of glory. Well, as it was then, so it is now. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in God's wisdom, in God's mysterious wisdom and his plan of redemption by which he would call us to himself, in the cross, God does a twofold thing in his, in his glorious wisdom. He, he hardens the proud and arrogant and he softens the lowly. Hardens the heart of the proud, but softens the heart of the lowly. The cross, at the same time, repels the mighty, but it draws the weak. The cross shames the wise in this world, but it, it exalts the fools for Christ's sake. Jesus' death on the cross is a profound mystery. It's this mystery by which God both conceals his glory in the cross and reveals his glory in the cross. Both occur simultaneously in the same event. In this case, we'll see today, at least with the characters that are by and large highlighted here, the glory of Christ is concealed. But for us who believe, it is greatly revealed. We see the glorious riches of our Savior. And we see that at the same time for us, as we see the, the beauty of the cross, we see him as our king of glory, don't we? And we see his great love for us. This whole passage really is presenting Jesus as the king. We're really coming to a bookend, if you will. Jesus is presented the king. Uh, the magi from the east come uh, early in the chapters uh, in the book of, of Matthew, and they come. We have come to see the king of Israel which Herod is, is not liking those, those phrases. There's only one king in his mind. But now here we are again. And we're seeing that he is a king. He's just not the king that we might have expected. We see his kingship presented through irony here in this text. And really three times by the lips of unbelievers, Jesus is professed to be king. Look in verse 29 having twisted a crown of, of thorns upon him uh, and putting a reed in his right hand. These soldiers kneel before him, they mock him, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They offer false homage here. Verse 37, over his head they put a charge against him, a sign which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
And then even the religious leaders themselves in verse 42, they say, he is the king of Israel. Three times in our text, Jesus is ridiculed, but yet rightly professed as the king of Israel. Now, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is it who would willingly be humiliated, willingly be tortured, willingly be killed? And why on earth would anybody in their right mind want to put their trust, loyalty, and life to that king? If you rest in human wisdom, you won't see any need for Jesus here. If you rest in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own might, the cross that is presented here will be a stumbling block to you. It'll be an offense to you. It'll be seen as utter foolishness to the world. But if you today rest on the wisdom of God, you will see that in Christ's sufferings, he is a glorious king. He is a glorious king who has accomplished for you what you could not do on your own. You'll see here in this text that Jesus' humiliation, his condemnation, and his denunciation has actually secured for you exaltation, justification, and salvation. He has done that. What a glorious king he is. And seeing this, you will then deny yourself take up your cross, and you will follow him. Though Jesus is despised by the world, the cross reveals that Jesus is the true king who saves his people by not saving himself. That's the kind of king that we worship. A king who lays down his life for us. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's at the cross that we now see, first of all, that it is Christ's humiliation that actually secures our exaltation. Christ's humiliation secures our exaltation. So let's come back to verse 27. Having been scourged, Jesus is now led by the Roman soldiers to Pilate's palace, his headquarters. We don't know exactly where it is, but he's moved from um, quarters to quarters here, and now he's, he's there and he has been beaten severely. He's been scourged by the whips. And, and, and we don't know how many lashes that the Romans would give. Jews would do 40 minus 1. But the Romans did it to the point to kind of speed up the death process before the cross. And we see that the soldiers, having scourged Jesus, lead him. And they bring him before the rest of the battalion. The battalion is actually um, 600 soldiers. And, and Matthew is very specific here. He says they gathered the whole battalion before him. And so the whole scene here is rather intimidated, if you, intimidating, if you will. The whole scene is, is brutal. As Jesus is now surrounded by 600 soldiers who are ridiculing him. Now just imagine having been brought in, probably drug in because you're, you're worn out, you haven't, you haven't slept, you've been, you've been beaten to a pulp. Imagine coming into a room with 600 men chanting at you, yelling at you, cursing at you, laughing at you, deriding you, 
all at the same time as they begin to strip you naked and lay you bare before them all. As Jesus stood there, laid there, exposed, the games begin to be played. They put upon him a scarlet robe. This was likely one of their own, or, or maybe they had one on hand, but these would be been uh, a cloak, a short cloak that a Roman soldier would put a red cloak around him. And they, as he's naked, they put this cloak upon him. Along with that cloak, they then uh, weave and twist uh, from some thorns and thistles, a crown of thorns in which they put on his head. And this crown would, would not only be painful, but it was humiliating. It's a weak crown, isn't it? You can just imagine just taking some, some weeds and, 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 and some thorns and, and, and gathering around and, and, and putting them on his head. You're making fun of him. You're, you're, you're a weak king. They don't only give him a crown and a cloak, but they give him a stick for a ruling rod. They give him a reed, just a small stick. And then they begin, as he's got his scepter in his right hand, they begin to, to, to pay false homage. They, they bend their knees, and they, and they think they are so clever. Hail, king of the Jews. And I imagine the crowd of soldiers are, are laughing and, and, and billowing as they watch. They take turns. After they have their fun, they, they show their disdain for him. What any, what any uh, false glory they might have given to him, they snatch that robe upon him and they begin to spit on him repeatedly. They take that staff, give that to me. They begin to beat him with it. Beat his head. I mean, there's, there's no other way to, to state it. This is utter evil, isn't it? Utter evil and hatred. They are looking at who they perceive is this ultimately vulnerable man with no one to speak up for him. And, and, and we see the, the wickedness of the human heart when, when it thinks that it has no consequences. Though Jesus is the king of the world, he is humiliated and mocked by the soldiers of the world. But what I want you to notice here is that everything Christ has is stripped from him, and all they have is placed upon him. They remove his clothes, and then they supply him with everything else. They give him a cloak, they give him a crown of thorns, they, they give him a ruling rod, and they give, them their, they give him their mockery and disgust and their hatred. What is going on here? What do, what do we see so vividly portrayed here? This violent scene visually illustrates the reality of what is about to take place on the cross. Jesus is going to take upon himself the sins of the world. He quite literally has a crown of thorns which is only made possible because of the curse in the world. He bears the curse upon his head. On earth, Jesus has been stripped of his heavenly glory to be humiliated and despised among men so that he may bear their shame and their guilt. He wears the crown of thorns and he bears the curse of sin which has infected the world. 
And yet, even in their mockery, in their cleverness, in their silliness, in their sport, they unwittingly foreshadow what is true of Jesus. He will have a crown. He will have a train of a robe that fills the temple. And he will rule with a rod, but it will not be a twig. It will be a rod of iron by which he will judge the nations. And they will bow down and they will confess him as Lord. Psalm 2 comes to mind here. As the nations rage, they have certainly taken counsel together, the Jews and the Romans. Effectively, you've got Jew and Greek, which is, and in that, that world, that's everybody. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And they have counseled together against the Lord and his anointed. And the Lord mocks and laughs at them from heaven as they think that they are tricky. And they think that they have won, or they think that they will, they will do these things and they will escape without any judgment. But the Lord has begotten his son. And from his holy hill, he will appoint him and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will crush them like a potter's vessel. However, everyone who rightly humbles themselves, rightly sees him and says, Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews. The one who truly bends the, the knee of their heart and bows before him in worship, who, who kisses the Son. Blessed is the one who finds refuge in him. For the same Jesus who was sent by the Father to be despised and rejected by the world will come again to have the nations as his, as his heritage. He will have you as his possessions. All the ends of the earth will be his possessions. In fact, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. You ever notice waters everywhere you see sea, right? In the same way, everywhere you look in the glorious new heavens and new earth will be the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus wore the crown of thorns, he will give us the crown of righteousness, life, and glory. And it's by his humiliation then he secures our exaltation. When he is exalted and all the world sees him for who he truly is, guess what? We will be identified with him as the sons and daughters of God. We'll be co-heirs with Christ. We'll reign with him in glory. We'll judge the nations with him. And so in the very real sense, his humiliation here secures our exaltation then. But it's also Christ's condemnation which secures our justification. After having sport with Jesus, they, they've removed the military cloak and they, they put his own clothes on his back. And, 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 and likelihood here is, is, is maybe they were having some cultural sensitivities uh, in the sense that in the, in the Jewish eyes, um, a naked body would be deemed unclean and and so for a limited time here, they have reclothed him. And, and in verse 32, we see that they lead him out. They lead him out to be crucified. Crucifixions always occurred outside the city gates. Corpses were deemed unclean and unholy. It's no coincidence that Jesus is crucified outside the city gates for 
Even the Old Testament sacrifice after it had, had been offered, the, the, the bodily remains would be burned outside the camp. And as the writer of Hebrews uh, makes the connection for us, says that now Christ, who had suffered outside the gate, he did so in order to purify the people through his own blood. We see here that Christ is going outside the gate. He's being banished outside so that he may bring us inside. Here we see that on the way out, Jesus needs another to carry his cross for him. Likelihood is, I know the pictures kind of usually portray uh, Jesus carrying a full-fledged cross, something like we might have up on the, on the right behind us and carrying it himself and dragging it. Uh, likelihood is, is that the poles were already in the ground. And the one who's going to be crucified would, would, would be bringing the cross beam. Well, we don't know why he needs help, but presumably it's because he's exhausted. He has no strength within him. He, he can't carry it on his own. And so they compel a man named Simon to carry his cross for him. And perhaps we should be thinking here of another Simon. A Simon who just hours ago said... Hey, if need be, I'll die with you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm always going to be there. He he was one who who talked a big game, but yet he and other disciples can be found. And so another Simon has taken his place, who will bear his cross. And many throughout church history, you know, you don't want to make too much out of this, but it is interesting. Um, Many have noted just... uh, Maybe even subtly here, the the call to bear the cross of Christ, to follow him. Simon of Cyrene um, may be uh, mentioned in the end of Romans with his son Rufus. Might be the reason why his name is brought up, that he's actually a Christian. And the Christian community would recognize him and, And that he helped carry the cross of Christ, which would be a vivid illustration of what we're called to do daily, right? To bear our cross and follow him. Nevertheless, Simon of Cyrene replaces Simon Peter. And he leads Jesus literally to the hill of death, to Golgotha, which is translated for us, the place of a skull. I mean, you can't describe death any more clearer than that, right? Jesus is literally being led to death. And while Jesus is helpless and defeated and on the cusp of death, we're reminded that in these events that everything is happening according to God's predetermined plan, his perfect plan of redemption. Even down to the fact in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. You you might say, what's significant about that? Well, lots of things, but Particularly here, we see an echo of Psalm 69, where David writes, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The purpose behind this could be uh, a fact of uh, adding insult to injury. Uh, Psalm 22 talks about how, how, how my tongue is stuck to my mouth, that no doubt he's, he's thirsty. Well, here, Jesus, have a drink. It would not only be wine, but mixed with gall, probably um, some sort of vinegar inside of it, which would made it just taste awful and disgusting. It may have also been used as a narcotic in some sense to numb the pain. 
And most scholars think that that's likely the case here because later you'll have him be given a sponge um, with, um, with wine on it. Or... But either way, what we see here is a fulfillment of Scripture, even in the minor, minor, most minor of details. But having tasted that, Jesus rejects it. You see it? Verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. If it is in case that, uh, the case that it was some sort of narcotic, some sense of which it would have numbed the pain, it even a, a little bit, Jesus tastes it, recognizes it, and says, no, I will drink the cup of God's wrath in full. He rejected the cup of mercy so that he may drink the cup of judgment full for us. Having been nailed then to the cross and lifted up, we also read that they had taken his garments and, and they, they cast lots. They, in our vernacular, they would, uh, they would roll dice to see who, who would get to keep them as a souvenir. Again, this comes from Psalm 22, 18. They, they divided my garments and cast lots for them. You even see as, as they gather around and they watch over me, the psalmist says, that after they had done that, verse 36, they sat down and kept watch over him there. Every facet of what is going on, though it looks as if Jesus is utterly helpless, utterly out of control, at the mercy of the evil Gentiles and Jews who are crucifying him, he is carrying out the fulfillment of God's plan step by step. Finally, we see the charge for his condemnation was placed over his head as he's crucified now between two criminals. And it says, quite literally, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You want to know what kind of king we have? Look to the cross. This is Jesus, our king. This causes us to ask the question, well, what kind of king do we have? Well, we have a king who is crucified, who is a stumbling block to Jews and a fool to Greeks, but to us a savior who has died so that we may have eternal life. He's condemned as a sinner. He's condemned as a criminal so that we may be justified as saints. Brothers and sisters, what kind of king do we have? We don't have a king who is aloof, who's distant from his people. He's a king who is identified with his people in every way so that he may sympathize with our weaknesses. He's a king who has come, who has borne all our shame and who has taken all of our guilt so that he may give us all of his strength, cover all our shame, and declare us righteous in his sight. What I want you to see is that if Jesus did not go to the cross in humiliation and in condemnation, we would not receive exaltation or justification. It's for this reason that Jesus was denounced so that he may secure our salvation. Our passage began with Christ being mocked by the Roman soldiers, and, and now it concludes with a, with a mocking of everyone else, if you will. You've got the passerbyers, the Jews who are walking by. You've got all the, the relig religious leaders represented, and it even includes the robbers who are now crucified on either side of him. 
It's as if the whole world has denounced Jesus, which is exactly what Psalm 22 says. Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. It's literally what happens. And you, you get that sense of disgust. Have you ever looked at someone or seen someone just acting like a fool? And you see what's going on, and you just shake your head, kind of walking off in mockery. This is what they think they're doing. They look at Jesus, and, and they begin to mock him, first of all, that about what they perceive to be his teaching about the temple. <laughs> Look at him. He who said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Look what's happened to him. Serves you right. You can just imagine the cries coming out. They call out. I say, if, that, if that's really what you're going to do, you, you better save yourself. They don't realize that they've understood what Jesus meant. This was likely, this was the charge that was really the, the basis by which they were trying to hang this, this cry of blasphemy upon Jesus. But when Jesus admits to being the Christ, what further evidence do we need? But this was a sense in which they had heard enough of Jesus' teaching, likely uh, in, uh, in, his, in the week leading up to the cross. Might have even overheard his conversation with the disciples as, as, as they're ooing and awing over the, the marvelous uh, uh, buildings of, of the temple. And Jesus says, you see these stones? Not one of them is going to be left upon the other. What they don't realize is that, and John's gospel gives us some insight into this, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple and it will be raised in three days. Why would he reference to himself as the temple? What's the temple? The temple is the dwelling place of God. It's the place where God's glory dwells among men. Well, the full temple has arrived. God has dwelt with man again. As Paul writes, the, 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 the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. And so, effectively, at the crucifixion, Jesus, the true temple, is being destroyed, the dwelling place of God. Yet in three days, it's going to be raised. We'll see more of this next week as the curtain of the temple is torn in two. And it all anticipates to the destruction of the temple, and there's a reason it's never been built. Because that era is over. Jesus is the laying down a new foundation with apostles and prophets, which him, himself is the chief cornerstone, and we are, are being built up as living stones, a holy temple unto the Lord. We don't have to go into a building where hands have, have made. God doesn't dwell in temple made by hands as Stephen knew and was, and was stoned for. No, he dwells and he takes up residence with us himself. They don't understand what is happening, but yet it's fulfilling the good news of our salvation. The next group, the religious leaders, give the most complete denunciation of, of Jesus, yet in doing so, they declare uh, uh, the truth about who he is three times. They mock him and, and make these statements. They say, he saved others. That's true. 
He is the king of Israel. That's true. He trusts in God. That's true. Of course, they're saying it tongue-in-cheek. But in each of these statements, as they challenge to prove uh, uh, that he is not these things, that these things are not true, they actually are professing what is really true. There's an irony here. What they do not realize is that by not saving himself, he is saving his people. That's what they're getting after in every statement here, isn't it? Save yourself if you're going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. You say you're the son of God, then come down from the cross, verse 40. Hey, you saved others, apparently he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Well, then prove it, come down from the cross. And we'll believe. You say that you trust in God. Well, does God delight in you? Apparently not. Otherwise, you would come down from this cross. By not coming down from the cross, Jesus demonstrates he is the king who gains victory over Satan, sin, and death. By not coming down from the cross, Jesus entrusts himself to the Father's will, knowing that he is the beloved son with whom the Father is well pleased. He entrusts himself to the Father who will not abandon his soul to Sheol. He will not abandon his body to the grave, but he will raise him up on the third day. By remaining on the cross, Jesus shows himself to be the faithful suffering servant for us, who is given up for our transgressions. So oftentimes, I think we want Jesus to do what we would deem to be remarkable. I said, hey, you know, if, you, if you'll just come down from the cross, we'll believe. But they do not understand the mysterious wisdom of God, that it pleased God through the foolishness of the cross to save those who would believe. That through the cross, a twofold reality is happening. It conceals his glory, but it reveals it to his elect. It reveals it to those who come to him by faith. To us who believe it is the power of God to salvation. As Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. All this is revealed in the cross. Brothers and sisters, what kind of king is Jesus? He's a rejected king. So that by faith you may be accepted. He is a king who does not save himself so that he may save you from your sins. He is a king who entrusts himself to the Father even unto death so that he might be able to walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. He can bring you to the other side in resurrection. At the cross, Jesus is humiliated, condemned, and denounced so that we might be exalted, justified, and saved. And just as at the resurrection, it proved that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the worthy king, so too our resurrection will prove that we are who God has said us to be. We are his sons and daughters with whom he is well-pleased. And all who put their faith in this crucified king, well, guess what? Will gain a father who lavishes his favor upon them. 
and that the resurrection will be made known to the world that we are sons and daughters. It's this truth that we're to be reminded of this morning now as we're going to come partake in the Lord's Supper. Dr. Brian's going to come and, and lead us. But as we take the elements, think of Christ's humiliation, think of Christ's condemnation, think of Christ's denunciation, and know that he's done this for you so that you may one day be exalted, one day that you will be justified and that you will be saved. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Jesus, oh, the glorious riches and wisdom of God revealed in the cross. And Lord, I pray for us today that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive what is laid before us today. Pray that Christ is lifted up and in doing so, you draw all men to yourself. It is the power of of the cross that we are able to be here today. And so Lord, as we now come and we remember, as we take the elements. Lord, may we look forward to that day of glory, which every eye will behold him in the sky. And he will come and he will be announced with the trumpet. And as the lightning flashes across the sky, every eye will see him and every head will turn. While the nations will wail and weep and say, who will save us from the great and terrible day of Lord's wrath, we will rejoice and say, here's our Savior. Lord, instill these truths in us as we remember your gracious gospel and your gracious love toward us in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.